God loves you. You're precious to Him. He knows your name. He's ordered your steps. And He's going to speak to you this morning through His Word. And so would you please open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 12. And if you don't have a Bible, I want you to open that uh, pew Bible in front of you. And you will find our passage. There's a little shortcut for you. It's on page 194. And I'm going to need your help when it comes time to read this passage today. And so it's going to be important for you to have an actual Bible in hand so that you can take part in the audience participation portion uh, of our time together this morning. Um, Joshua chapter 12, everyone's favorite Advent passage. I know you were thinking it when you came in this morning. And uh, this is our last Sunday in Joshua. So next Sunday, we're going to go to Luke chapter 2 and spend time with Simeon. Christmas Eve Sunday, we're going to spend time with Anna. Uh, and then uh, we'll begin the new year in the Gospel of Matthew. Why are we stopping Joshua here? Just real quick, give you a, a quick little explanation for why we're stopping in chapter 12. We're only pausing, we're not stopping. Um, I'm trying a new, this is super nerdy and I apologize in advance. I'm trying a new approach to the preaching calendar. There are six major divisions of Scripture. You've got law, history, writings, prophets, gospels, acts, and the epistles, six of them. And as a church, we're committed to expository preaching, verse-by-verse -verse preaching through books of the Bible. But uh, we're going to do that on a two-year cycle. What I mean is every two years, we want to dip a toe in every major section of the Bible so that we don't just live in Cody's favorite section of the Bible, whatever that might be, but I want us as a church to be well-versed and familiar with every major section of Scripture. And so if you think about where we've been just this year, we started the year in the book of Micah, that's prophets. We spent the summer in Colossians, that's epistles. We spent the last uh, couple of months in Joshua, that's history. Uh, and now next we're going to step into uh, the Gospels and the Gospel of Matthew. I want you to be familiar and be in love with all of God's Word. And so in, in, in every two years, we'll have spent time in every major section or genre of Scripture. And so when it comes time to come back to the history portion of the Bible, we'll pick up with Joshua chapter 13. About two or three years down the road, it's still going to be fresh on your mind. You're going to be pumped up for it by the time we get there, I know. Uh, but that's the plan of attack, and uh, we'll give it a try. And if it doesn't work, we'll do something different down the road. But uh, I'm excited about this, and uh, if you want to talk more about nerdy things like that, just grab me. Be glad to have that conversation. So Joshua chapter 12, here it is, the, the end of this first major teaching section of the book of Joshua. I want you to put your eyes on the pages. I want you to look at chapter 12. I want you to sort of start to take in what you're looking at. And what do you see when you glance at chapter 12? You see uh, a lot of names of places. You see like there's rivers and mountains and, and regions. And you see the names of, of kings. And then you see this long list starting in verse 9 of all these names of kings with the word one right after them. Here's this repetition uh, throughout the chapter, and, and I wonder what your initial reaction is just to looking at chapter 12. You might think to yourself, looks a little boring. I, I'm not, 
Like this is not, if you needed a, a pump up chapter of the Bible, like you just probably wouldn't flip here. Or if you were just looking for something random to read, you flipped and landed on Joshua 12, you might say, okay, flip again. Let's see where we land. And if that's the case, if you look at this with a raised eyebrow or with a little bit of sense of, uh, not this, there's probably one of two reasons. One, you just are not familiar with Joshua chapter 12 and all of its awesomeness. Two could be you are not a person who praises God on the regular. You don't understand the importance of the practice of the praise of God because chapter 12 is a chapter of praise. We've been through 11 chapters of warfare. Chapter 12 is a praise break. You got to think about it like it is a, a song. It's not a song, but you got to think about it that way. Like it's a song of praise to God for all of his mighty acts. It's a praise break. It is theological zoomies. It's an emotive response to all that God has done for his people. When we read this chapter, we are hearing the voice of God and all of Israel praising him for his mighty acts. And immediately you might push back a little bit and you might say, I'm not ready today to talk about praise or to think about praise. And I respect that and I understand that we all come in here from a whole bunch of different hard experiences over the past week and beyond. And you might come in here really struggling and challenging. And I know how the holiday season can pose a unique challenge for us emotionally in a number of ways. And if that's you today, I'm asking you to give me the benefit of the doubt as we work through Joshua chapter 12. Because I'm telling you, this is precisely for you. You are the one more than anyone else who needs Joshua chapter 12. Give the voice of God a fair hearing today as he works in us reasons to praise him. My goal in preaching this passage is to fill your hearts and your mouths with praise. And Joshua chapter 12 gives us two reasons to praise God. They're broad categories to be fair, but two big reasons for you and I to praise God. Now when I read this, I'm going to need your help. I'm going to need you to participate with me uh, in a part of the reading of this chapter. So if you'll look down at verse 9, when we get to this list of names of kings, you are responsible to read the word one, and then the word at the very end, 31. So when we get to verse 9, I'll say the king of Jericho, and then in unison, I need every voice to say one, and then I'll read the king of Ai, which is next to Bethel, and then every voice together to say one. How many times are you going to do that? 31 times. And then at the end, you're going to say together 31. All right, follow along with me as I read Joshua chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The Israelites struck down the following kings of the land and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan to the east and from the Arnon River to Mount Hermon, including all the Arabah eastward. King Sihon of the Amorites lived in Heshbon. He ruled from Eror on the rim of the Arnon River along the middle of the valley and half of Gilead up to the Jabbok River, the border of the Ammonites. The Arabah east of the Sea of Chinnereth to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, 
eastward through Beth Jeshemoth, and southward below the slopes of Pisgah. King Og of Bashan, of the remnant of the Rephaim, lived in Ashtaroth and Edri. He ruled over Mount Hermon, Salakah, all Bashan up to the Geshurite and Machathite border, and half of Gilead to the border of King Sihon of Heshbon. Moses the Lord's servant and the Israelites struck them down, and Moses the Lord's servant gave their land as an inheritance to the Reubenites, Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh. Joshua and the Israelites struck down the following kings of the land beyond the Jordan to the west from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak, which ascends toward Seir. Joshua gave their land as an inheritance to the tribes of Israel according to their allotments, the hill country, the Judean foothills, the Arabah, the slopes, the wilderness, and the Negev, the lands of the Hethites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. The king of Jericho. Nope, not going to work. Not, I'm telling you right now, I will turn this car around. King of, the, of Jericho. One. We can't know. Do you remember what happened at Jericho? It was unbelievable. And so this is praise material, and I need you to speak it like you believe it, all right? Remember what God did at Jericho. It was unbelievable. And so when we, wait, 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 wait. I'm not done with my rant. Post-rant, we praise. So as we do these, with strength, with vigor, with recognition of the mighty acts of God, I want you to speak back, all right? So verse 9, the king of Jericho. The king of Ai, which is next to Bethel. The king of Jerusalem. The king of Hebron. The king of Jarmuth. The king of Lachish. The king of Eglon. The king of Gezer. The king of Debir. The king of Geder. The king of Hormah. The king of Arad. The king of Libna. The king of Adullam. The king of Makeda. The king of Bethel. The king of Tapua. The king of Hefer. The king of Aphek. The king of Lasharon. The king of Madon. The king of Hazor. The king of Shimron Meron. The king of Akshaph. The king of Tanakh, the king of Megiddo, the king of Kadesh, the king of Jachnium in Carmel, the king of Dor in Naphath Dor, the king of Goim in Gilgal, the king of Tirzah, the total number of all kings. Hey, this is the word of the Lord. I'm telling you. You did so good. All right. 31 kings defeated. Israel has taken possession of the promised land. And what is it that God has done for his people in chapters 1 to 11 that is so praiseworthy? Why would we come in here in the midst of a world under the decay of sin? All kinds of brokenness and hardship. And yet we would remember the works of the Lord and praise him together. Why would we do that? 
Joshua 12 gives us two reasons. The first reason, you and I are going to praise God. We're going to praise God for the unity of his people. This first paragraph, verses 1 through 6, call us to remember the unity of God's people. And this is something that God is worthy of praise for. So you can divide chapter 12 up into two broad sections. Verses 1 through 6 are all about the land taken by Israel to the east of the Jordan River. And then verse 7 to the end is all about the victories of Israel to the west of the Jordan River in the promised land proper. And so uh, we have these two large segments of, of land that are described in this passage it is helpful when you read chapter 12 to do so with a map. And so check out this map. Can I get an oh yeah for the map? It's incredible. Now in the absence of maps, when this was originally written, you've got a writer that has to give all the geographical markers. And so all these places, all these names are the writer helping the reader visualize the scope of the territory of the promised land. These are all the places that God has given you. And so this first paragraph, verses 1 to 6, describes these lands to the east of the Jordan River. I know it's not easy to see, but you might make out the Dead Sea in the bottom center, and then the Sea of Galilee, sort of top center. It's called the Sea of Chinnereth in chapter 12. It's the Sea of Galilee. And all the locations named in verses 1 to 6 make up all of this land to the east of the Jordan River. So you can kind of see there towards the, the bottom, this southern border to the east of the Jordan River, all the way up, way up north of the Sea of Galilee, past Dan, all the way up there. So what we've read in verse 6, or excuse me, verses 1 to 6, is this map this description of all these places and these places when Israel first arrived on the scene were dominated by two prominent kings King Sihon and King Og now King Sihon and Og were a big deal they had vast kingdoms they were serious warriors they were very protective of their property uh, Israel was the underdogs when they came up against Sihon and Og but God gave them victory over these two kings. And now, the land that used to belong to Sihon and Og now belongs to two and a half tribes of Israel. It belongs to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half of Manasseh. So you will have East Manasseh and West Manasseh. So these two and a half tribes of Israel now have this property. Now, the defeats of Sihon and Og were a big deal to ancient Israel. If I were to ask you to name a couple of notorious biblical bad guys. You might throw out Haman from the book of Esther. You might say King Herod or Pontius Pilate. Those are some pretty prominent bad guys in the Bible. But Israel never got away from Sihon and Og. They kept those names at the forefront of their minds because it was a big deal that God gave them victory over these two. Evidence of this is in Psalm 136. And you love Psalm 136. I know you do because it has the repetition of the line about God, his faithful love endures forever. And so in Psalm 136, it starts this way. We, we love this psalm. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His faithful love endures forever. 
16 verses of that. And then you get to verse 17 and check this out. He struck down great kings. His faithful love endures forever. And slaughtered famous kings. His faithful love endures forever. Sihon, the king of the Amorites. His faithful love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, his faithful love endures forever. Israel never got over this victory east of the Jordan River. It's in their ancient hymnal. They praised God for these victories, never forgetting what God had done for his people. Now when the tribes of Reuben and Gad and Manasseh settled in these territories east of the Jordan River... There was a fear that gripped Israel's leaders. Do you remember this scenario? The fear was a fear of disunity. In the book of Deuteronomy, we read when these tribes approached Moses and they said, we like it here. This is great for our herds. We just, we want to put down our roots here on the eastern side of the promised land. And Moses grew irate. He, he was concerned that these people were dividing Israel and that they were making a selfish choice at the expense of their fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so Moses said, you, you cannot do this. And they said, here's our commitment. Our commitment is we will lead the way into the promised land. Our soldiers will be the front lines. And they will not return home to this land until all the land is taken and distributed to all of Israel. Moses said, all right, you got it. Let's do that. And if you remember when we began our study in the book of Joshua, chapter 1, Joshua has that same conversation with these two and a half tribes. Don't think you can stay here on the eastern side of the promised land. You made a commitment. You have to lead us in. And you don't come home until all the land is taken and distributed to your people. And these two and a half tribes said, that's it. We're going to do that. We will make sure that we get all of God's people, all that God has promised them. So when these tribes show up here in chapter 12, it's as if the writer is reminding Israel, don't forget that God gave victories to Israel east of the Jordan as well. Don't forget that Israel lives over there also. This is a reminder of Israel's unity. They are one people. They are not two peoples separated by a river. Israel is one. God is utterly serious about the unity of his people. And of all the things that chapter 12 speaks to us about, it speaks to us about the importance of unity among the family of faith. God is ultimately concerned that his people would be one. And how do we know that? We know that because... That's what the Garden of Eden was like to begin with. It was a place without division. The paradise that God made at the beginning of all things was a place where people were unified with God. People were unified with each other. People were unified with creation. There was no division until sin entered the scene. And one of the consequences of the fall was division between people and God, between people and people, even husband and wife. Division between people and creation so that now the, the, the land that used to give us food gladly, joyfully, now fights against us. It's hard labor. Division is a sign of sin, a consequence of sin. But in all the places where God works unity, in our homes, 
in our lives, in our church, in our world, in all those places we get glimpses of Eden. How important was unity to Jesus? It's this important. On the night before he was crucified, John chapter 17, he prayed for the unity of the church. Father, make them one as you and I are one. Super important to Jesus, way more important to Jesus than it might be to you and I because we have lived in division and disunity for so long. It's hard for us to imagine things being different. But Eden was a place of unity. Jesus prayed that we would be brought together and unified by God. And that same um, desire is mentioned throughout all of Scripture, in fact. When we get to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he talks about the work of Christ bringing people together from all walks of life into one temple of the Lord. He describes Christ as unifying people from every possible background. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul drives home the point that we are many members of one body. There we see the unity that God is working in His people. And then you go to the book of Revelation chapter 5. Jesus is praised there because He died for people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And then in chapter 7 of the book of Revelation, the throne of God is surrounded by worshiping people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And don't we see God's unifying work in humanity around Jesus even in the Christmas story? Think about Luke's gospel. The birth announcement came to shepherds. It didn't come to kings. It didn't come to priests. It didn't come to politicians and power brokers. It came to dirty, lowly, impoverished shepherds. Because God is making a new people for himself around the incarnate Christ. And not only there, but you go to Mark, or excuse me, Matthew's gospel, and he describes astrologers from the east being summoned by God to the Christ child because God is uniting humanity around Jesus Christ. That's what brings us all in here together this morning. Different walks of life, different experiences, different first languages, different all kinds of things. But what brings us together as one family, one church, is Jesus Christ and our faith in Him. So although there are things that make us different, countless reasons why we should not sit in the same room together. In Christ, we are brothers and sisters, one family, one body, a living temple, one loaf in Him as He brings unity out of disunity, brings us together out of division. Our world loves division. People feel warm in their hearts when they identify who they oppose and who they belong to. Division is one of the highest cultural values in our world today. But the people of Christ are so very different because of Him. We are brought together, brothers and sisters, by Jesus Christ. That's why there's hope for marriages in Jesus Christ. And that's why there's hope for healing when relationships are broken. And that's why there's hope for churches when conflict abounds. There's hope for us because Christ is bringing us together. Unity is difficult. There's two kinds of problems in church life, probably in all of life. Two kinds of problems. There are problems we can fix, 
And there are problems we just got to live with. We address them, but we're not going to fix them. Unity is one of those problems. It's an ongoing work. All, there's always challenges to unity on this side of the new heavens and the new earth. But we still strive to bring more of Eden to this place through our unity around Jesus Christ. It's an ongoing work. And so if unity is important to our God, if unity is what He is working in our redemption, shouldn't you and I be about this work? You know, we, we can sit back and say, I, I want to look, I want to identify, I want to see where the unity is happening. And we can also say, I'm going to contribute to it. So here's how you can do that. Here's one really simple way as a, a regular worshiper in this church. Here's what you can do. Every time you come to the campus, meet someone new. Make it a part of your worshiping morning. You're not coming to a theater. You're not coming to a show. This is more like a living room. It's a living room where I do most of the talking, but still it's a living room. And when I get quiet, then you get to do all the talking. But still, what if you made it a priority every Sunday morning? I'm going to meet someone new today. What's the worst that could happen? I mean, your head will probably explode. I mean, that's spontaneous combustion happens a lot. It's just not widely reported. No, here's what... Here's what's going to happen, is you're going to meet someone new, and they're going to meet you, and this place feels more and more like home, and we become known for our unity. Friendship is the pathway to unity. Unity is not just about our ideology. Unity is about our shared, lived experience with one another. You've got to meet someone new. Every Sunday you're here, member of this church, you've got to meet someone new. Every Sunday. You might want to sit someplace different. I know, we're, we're just, I mean, I'm off the rails this morning. But I'm telling you, friendship is the pathway to unity in Jesus Christ. We want everyone who comes in this room, regardless of what town they've come from or whatever their history is, we want them to know they belong here because of Jesus Christ. The church is not different from the world because of how, how much we prize our division and our differences. We are distinct because of our unity around Christ. And so as you strive for unity in your home and in the church, you have something to praise God for. He is giving us glimpses of Eden. Number one reason to praise God, Joshua 12, the unity that he is working among his people. Second reason to praise God in Joshua chapter 12, we're going to praise God for every good thing all the time. And we just got to throw a big old our arms wide and just get all of these reasons under this big umbrella. We're going to praise God for every good thing all the time. So when we get to verse 7, our, our focus shifts geographically from the land east of the Jordan River to the land west of the Jordan River. So between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, Promised land proper is what is described in the last half of the chapter. But it's not enough to just describe the area of the promised land. The writer doesn't just give us uh, the names of towns or regions. The writer does a roll call of 31 defeated kings. And here's what we cannot miss about these 31 names. They represent not simply defeated kings but countless details of God's faithfulness to Israel. I, I wanted to make sure you understood that when we paused the first time we hit verse 9 so that you would think about what happened at Jericho. It is not just some bland name on the page. There's a rich story of God's faithfulness and power that happened at Jericho. 
It was seven days of marching around the city in silence, and then trumpets and shouts on day seven, and the walls of the city collapsed. And that's just one story of 31 in which God moved in powerful, miraculous ways on behalf of His people. I mean, wouldn't you love to know what happened at Arad, and Tapua, and Hazor, and Tirzah? Uh, we don't have those accounts but it would be incredible to know what God did. Not one of those stories is boring or mundane because God's work is always amazing. Now, now, I can't say for sure. This is just a guess on my part, so it could be wrong. Feel free to toss this out. But I wonder if the repetition of the word one grew louder and more defiant each time it was read by Israel. This is like, pep rally material. This is get pumped up. Like, now, look, it would be enough if there was just one name on the page. If all it said was the king of Jericho, man, but that's, it's victory march time after that. But we've got 31 kings, 31 battles, 31 victories, 31 reasons to praise God. But the Bible is more than just these 31 victories, correct? I mean, how many, if you had to put a number to it, how many praiseworthy acts of God are in the rest of the Old Testament. We start with 31. It's got to be more than 32. How would you even number the mighty acts of God that make Him worthy of praise in the Old Testament? I mean, how many incredible acts of God are found in the book of Judges? And how many times did God act on behalf of Ruth and Naomi? And what did God do for King David over the course of his life? And, and uh, what about, what did God do for Solomon and for Isaiah and for Ezekiel and Esther and Nehemiah and Micah and Daniel? Israel in the exile and Israel in the return. And then what about the New Testament? How many praiseworthy acts of God are found in the Christmas story alone from Elizabeth's miraculous pregnancy to Joseph's faithfulness to Mary's strength? And what of Christ's life? His countless healings, His power over evil, His omnipotence over creation. And, and only then do we get to the cross. And how can you possibly count all that is praiseworthy of God in the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? And we haven't even talked about the arrival of the Holy Spirit indwelling believers in the book of Acts and beyond, and the birth of the church, and the spread of the gospel, and the unbreakable promise of Christ's return and sure victory in the book of Revelation. It's countless. If we were to make an itemized list, it's countless, all of these things. And I, I want you to know this. It's good to praise God for what He did in the Old Testament story. And it is good to praise God for what He did in the New Testament story. But friends, you got to look to your own life and praise God for what He has done in your story. He is your God. He is your God living and active today. And how many things would you list if you were to create an itemized list of what God has done in your life that is praiseworthy? When is the last time you counted have you ever counted? Do you regularly itemize the work of God in your life? I don't think you do. And that's not because I, I think low of you. I just, this practice is not talked about, valued, and promoted among our spiritual disciplines. What are the lists that we keep? It's lists of needs. 
lists of wants, lists of problems that God needs to fix. And there's nothing unchristian about that. That is thoroughly biblical and proper. That's a, that's a list of faith. God, if you don't fix it, it's not getting fixed. We need that list. And with that list, we need all the mighty acts of God. Do you have that list? Are you committed to regularly remembering the mighty acts of God for his people in days of old and for you in these days? If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, I want to particularly challenge you on this point. So many people, when they, they think about God, when they're looking for God, what, what, what people might be looking for is a God who's going to fix things, a God who's, who's a, a means to their ends. And so I, I've got some issues, and I, I could really use a fix-it God. People want a utilitarian God who's going to fix the things they want him to fix. Some people might even say something like this. They might think, all right, God, if you'll do something for me, you do this thing for me, then I'm, I'm going to do something for you. Have you ever considered everything he has already done for you. You think you're here today by your own achievement? You have no idea the love of God that has been poured out on you and you never asked for it. You never earned it. You never sought it. You didn't pray for it. He's a God of grace and mercy and love. And even though you in your sin are a rebel against him, he has blessed you in countless ways. Rather than trying to strike a deal with God, what if you did this? What if you were to sit down and begin to itemize all the things God has done for you? You will find irrefutable proof that the God of the Bible is the God of salvation. And friend, you would run immediately to him with praise in your mouth. Not striking a deal with a deity made in your own image, but with a God who blesses his people. Your life will be transformed. Because you'll just look at your life and you'll think, here's all the things he's done for me and you're right. But then you're going to get to the Bible and you're going to see that when you were dead in your sin, God the Father sent God the Son to die in your place. He took your death so you could live his life. Jesus died for your sin. Three days later, he rose from the dead and there is nothing more praiseworthy in all creation than the gospel, the good news that you're loved by him. So he calls you to remember, calls all of us to remember through this itemized list all of God's victories. His victories in our past and in our lives, it, it solidifies our confidence in our future with him. And this is why we praise God for every good thing all the time. Why should you praise God? Joshua 12 has given us two big reasons. One is for God's unifying work in us, and two, for every good thing he does all the time. Now, it's time for your objection. You've been sitting on it patiently the whole time. Thank you for listening and receiving this. And here's your objection. The objection is this. This is tone deaf because my life is a train wreck. I refuse to paint on a happy face and pretend like everything is okay. The proper application of Joshua chapter 12 is not artificial happiness. 
I'm not telling you to fake it till you make it. So let me give you this analogy. Maybe this helps you orient yourself to Joshua chapter 12 here at the end of our time in it. Imagine you find out you need surgery, a very serious surgery, and you're on the hunt for a surgeon. You find a surgeon. What do you want to know about that surgeon? You want to know all that surgeon's accomplishments. What has that surgeon done in this field, in this particular area throughout their path? What's the resume? What's the list of accomplishments? And in your pain, in your need for surgery, you will find hope and comfort when you rehearse the accomplishments of your surgeon. Are you with me? And this is what it is for us in our sorrows and trials. Remembering the praiseworthy acts of God is especially for those of us who are hard-pressed on every side. The praise of God is not the luxury of the unafflicted. It is the cry of faith from the pit. And so whether you came in here this morning limping or dancing, today is your day to praise God. And tomorrow is your day to praise God. And every day after that, here's my challenge to you in light of Joshua chapter 12. This week, would you set aside some time to write out an itemized list of God's mighty acts for you? I don't know how long that list needs to be. I don't know what needs to go on it. But you set aside time. Make it a priority in your personal worship with God. Create that list. And once you have that list made, it should be a living and breathing list. You're going to add to it as you continue to live your days. And you sit with that list and you talk about that list to God. You talk to Him about it in prayer and in your own personal worship. Let the praise of God fill your heart and your mouth. It has always been the practice of God's assembled people to praise Him together. God unifies us in our praise. In Israel's ancient hymnal, the book of Psalms ends with songs of praise. They never got over what God did in defeating all these kings. And so I want you to let Israel's practice of praise inspire you to do the same Look at how the book of Psalms closes, starting in Psalm 149. Hallelujah. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the faithful. Let Israel celebrate its maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the faithful celebrate in triumphal glory. Let them shout for joy on their beds. Let the exaltation of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands inflicting vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, binding their kings with chains and their dignities with iron shackles, carrying out the judgment decreed against them. This honor is for all His faithful people. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His powerful acts. Praise Him for His abundant greatness. Praise Him with the blast of a ram's horn. Praise Him with a harp and lyre. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and flute. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Praise Him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that breathes praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Do you have breath?
Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for your glory in all creation. We praise you for your love for your people. We praise you for Jesus Christ, the word in flesh dwelling among us, died in our place on the cross, rose again, coming again. We praise you for the promise of a return. We long for that second advent. God, we praise you for the people we're sitting next to this morning. We praise you that we have people to love and people who love us. We praise you for the songs you give us to express our praise. We praise you for all your mighty deeds for your people in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and in our own lives. God, I praise you for the new life you bring today to the one who turns from their sin and their self-righteousness, and they turn to Jesus by faith. I praise you for a salvation so beautiful as this. And I praise you for the way you are making us your people, drawing us together, creating us into a new Eden type of people. Father God, we praise you. We praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.